So what we're looking at is that imperishable fruit of God's word and what it does for us. So let's look at the fruit of the word. Uh, if you if you get a chance to to ever like compare like Greek language to the English here, it, it gets to be helpful because sometimes that actually gives you like outlines and flow of thought. If you don't get that, that's okay. You can go to like a Strong's or Young's concordance and look those things up and it'll tell you the verb structure. But here's, there's three actually, uh, there are three imperatives that are given. The first is this, that you're commanded to hope. That's what an imperative is. This is what you should do. I command you to do that. That's what the imperative uh, means. And so if the, uh, Peter's writing and the Holy Spirit's inspired him, and I say if, that's really a sense, okay, um, since those things have happened, Peter's saying our command is to hope. Now here's, look, look back at verse 13, okay, let's make sure we get that clear. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. So the first thing that we, we should desire is to hope. Well, how is that hope? There's two participles that set us up for how we're to rightly hope. And those two participles are preparing our minds and being sober-minded. Now, that really, when I started studying this, that really arrested my attention because I'm thinking, why does Peter use two things to describe our minds? Why why prepare our minds and be sober-minded? There's something about that 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 must be important. So I started digging in a little bit. And what's interesting is both of those words are participles. Now, what do participles do? Y'all, all all you eighth grade grammar students, right? You're like, oh my goodness, what are we doing in grammar and church for? Because it's important, okay? Does anybody remember what do participles do? All right, everybody go home and pull out your eighth grade grammar book. (laughs) It's summer, we're not supposed to study. Yeah, participles. Nobody? Come on. Okay. Participles modify verbs. Okay. They tell us what is that, how that action is supposed to occur. So if we're going to set our hope on fully on Christ, what we've got to do is we've got to have our minds right, prepared and sober-minded. So let me tell you what those two things mean and why I think there's two different participles there. First of all, think about when you prepare your mind. I could relate it to this, like preparing a meal. If you're preparing a meal, you want all the ingredients there, right, so that the meal comes out right. If you don't have all the ingredients and you're leaving something out, what does it do? It impacts the flavor, right? So if you're looking at a recipe, typically you'd go through that recipe and go, okay, I got all the ingredients, good, we're good to go. And if you don't have all the recipes, what might you do? You go to the store and get them, right? So here's what it means to prepare your mind. There's an intentionality to it. That there is a readiness to it. That there is an awareness to it. That there is a determination unto resolve. That there is a dedication and that there is concentration. See, if, if we just sit back and go, well, I, I'm preparing my minds and I don't do anything to get there. Just like what we experienced in the eighth grade grammar lesson right now. See, the, the, our, our English teachers from back then would be so disappointed, wouldn't they? Because they would go, and I'm trusting that your wife, Mark Pennington, Rachel, would be at least able to get this as a journal, journalist major. You're sure of it, right? We're going to, everybody call Rachel or ask her today in a text. That would be so fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> would she get a kick out of that? She would. So you're giving us permission to text Rachel, hey, what does a participle do? <laughs> I'm doing it. 
If she doesn't get it the first time, certainly she'll Google it and get it right for everybody else. No, but we, we have those moments of preparation and intentionality so that we can be successful with things, right? And if we're going to set our hope on the grace of God that changes us, we have to do things. And, and so many people, I think in today's culture, just want heart change. But, but here's the interesting thing. Where does Peter, where does Paul in Romans say we need to start? With our minds. That, that it's coming into contact with the truth and understanding the truth so that our thinking changes, so that when, as our thinking changes, the, the follow-up is our heart. And if we don't understand the truth, then we, we have nothing to hold us accountable to. Does that, does that make sense? We, we would just say, well, I, I've got a heart change, but what does it change towards? That's not healthy. And, and so the seat of change begins as we renew our minds. So, so let me ask you this. How are you being intentional in studying the gospel? How are you readying yourself to give an answer for the faith that you possess? How are you aware of things like what James Emery White is, is describing that going on culturally that we need to stand firm in the gospel for? How are you determining unto resolve how you will stand firmly in the faith? Can I tell y'all something? I know this is morbid in a sense, but I've often thought about this. Most of us do not have a theology of death. You go, what? Why would we want a theology of death? Well, I'll tell you why I have a theology of death. As a pastor, I have the privilege and responsibility of ministering to families when they lose someone that they love. And in those moments, grief it, it, it will overwhelm and train wreck so many people because they've never thought through what the Bible teaches truthfully about death and, and the afterlife. And I get to funerals and people will talk about, oh yeah, so-and-so aunt, she's, she's now an angel. I'm like, that is not what the scriptures teach. And, and they want answers and you try to take them to the Bible, but because they have not readied themselves, they're being shipwrecked in their faith. And so I know that sounds odd, but I would encourage you, be ready for that. Because all of us will face the death of a loved one. And we need to have that in place. And how many other things do we need to be ready for? Parents, how many of you were ready when you started parenting? Oh, I was. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. I was not. <laughs> As much as I thought I was, I was not. Well, how do you continue to ready yourself, especially when you start parenting teenagers? You better get into the Word, and you better be on your face before God to make sure that you're continuing to ready yourself with answers for how you parent. Because the principles are there. God's Word is, is good for everything that we face in this world. So we need that readiness. We need a determination unto resolve. Because how many times do we hear the truth, and what does James say? We need to be also doers of the word. Because if we hear it and we don't do it, then that's what? It's sin. And we don't like that, do we? But there needs to be this determination unto resolve to say, God's word says this, I'm going to obey. And then lastly, there's this dedication or concentration that we're saying, I am going to be uh, committed to this, and I'm going to concentrate on these things. Not just, oh, well, I read it once a long time ago, and that's enough. But there's a dedication 
to follow up and concentrate on these things. So that's what it means to be prepared in your minds. What about sober-minded? Here's, a, I think, some descriptions of this. That we do not indulge in a worldly game. Think about that for just a quick moment. Sober-minded, see, is, I think it's this idea of guardianship. It, it, we can prepare, but we also need to put on the backside of guardianship. How many times do we lose sight of what we ought to be preparing for because we don't guard on the backside? And then all of a sudden we want worldly gain. And we were like, whoa, that, that doesn't really do me any good. But I spent all this effort pursuing that, but, but it's not really worth it. It's, it's compromised me. What about this? I, I, and you guys know I struggle with this, but we should not be depressed by temporal matters. How many times I get in struggles with automobiles or this circumstance or that, and those temporal matters just overwhelm me? And now I'm not talking about depressed to the sense that I'm, you know, in, in a need of going to a psychologist or a counselor, but I, the, the world just overtakes me and I get really, really uh, tense, uptight, frustrated, and I can go on and on. And y'all are looking at me like I'm a cat, like a calf at a new gate. I'm hitting home, right? T- toes are stepped on, okay. Because we're all there. We get caught up in these temporal things and we're not guarding because we're, we're not focused on the eternal matters. And I, I thought about this too. I want to read this. How many of us carefully consider, I think this is being sober-minded, carefully considering biblical truths as authority and submitting ourselves to the God who establishes them? That's guardianship, being sober-minded, considering biblical truth and allowing the God who established those things to rule us. Sober-minded. And see, that's, sorry, I don't know why it's doing that. That's where Peter starts. And if we're going to have the hope of Christ driving us, we have got to be prepared in our minds, and we've got to be sober-minded. Well, the next command that he gives is a command to be holy. Look at verse uh, 14 and following. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So, when we are rightly identifying with the Word of God, we are different. I think that's part of this morning why worship just captured my heart, is that I was dead in my sin and trespasses, but by the grace of God, I am now made alive. And I'm not just made alive to live eternally with God, I'm made alive to be holy as He is holy. What an incredible gift from God. I, I, but I take it for granted. And so what I do when I take it for granted is I don't try to walk in holiness as an obedient child. I just kind of go around, you know, just letting life happen. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to be holy because he is holy. It's a command for us to engage in that living. And he says it, it's qualified by our what? Obedience to the truth. And then lastly, this produces, I think, a healthy response in us. And that's this command to fear God. Now, I want to turn, ask you to turn over to Hebrews. There'll be a couple books before 1 Peter, Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11. I want you to hear what I think a healthy fear of the Lord is described as. Because if, if we don't have a healthy fear, then what we do or tend to do is negate His grace and mercy. 
because we uh, are not rightly oriented to his character and nature. See, it's like we try to live apart from him. So here's where I think uh, the writer of Hebrews gives us a great illustration in how we can depend rightly on the goodness of God, even when it feels uncomfortable. So let's read 5 through 11. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there from uh, whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, here's the point. I, I think that oftentimes we don't like the discipline of God. We don't like the discipline of our parents, do we? If we're, when we were teens or if you're a teen. We don't like the discipline of the police when they stop us because we're speeding. Let's face it. We just don't like discipline. But the truth is, discipline is there for what? Our benefit right? And when we have a healthy fear of the one giving discipline, it sets us on a right path. If, you have, if you're stopped for speeding and that officer asks you to step out of the car because he needs to talk to you, or you, you cop an attitude when he shows up at the, the window and he, then he asks you to step out of the car, what's going to happen? You're going to be put on the ground, you're going to be handcuffed and probably arrested because you did not show a healthy respect for that officer and the authority in, his, in your life. Same with, thing with your parents. If you disobey your parents, what's going to happen? They're going to become frustrated and possibly angry, and then they're going to issue more discipline. Why? The truth is discipline is there because we love our children and or the police officer loves the law and wants to uphold it for our benefit. I, I think about this often because I, I struggle to, with speeding, just confession, because I'm always in a hurry, and so I'm like racing. I'm like, but officer, I need to get to this location. Well, what's he going to say to me? Well, I need you to get there safely, so slow down. Obey the law. Because if you're, the chances for you getting injured or having an accident increase, the faster you go. And I know that, but what do I still choose to do? Lay my foot down and go on. Even though I think through all those things. But the truth is, if I get pulled over, what do I need to say to that officer? Thank you for stopping me because I know that I was guilty and I need the discipline. God is no different. When we have a healthy fear of him, it changes how we live. And look at, what, look at back at 1 Peter 18, 118. I think this is a really great statement by Peter. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers... Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. See, everything that, that the, the, the Old Testament saints and, and these, um, uh, these believers were raised with was futile. 
Until Christ comes in, everything was futile. So what we have in Christ and the discipline of, of our Heavenly Father is pure and righteous. It's holy. It's just. Everything else was futile. Why do we drift back to the futile things? That, that's what Paul's getting at. I mean, Peter's getting at. Is that we tend to struggle and we go back by default to the wrong things. And that's why I think we spurn the genuine fear of the Lord. Because we just want to drift back to what's easier. But God's ways are higher than ours, and we need to relent and relinquish to them. So now, here's the thing. All of these truths put together, they breed an outcome in us. But here's the, the first thing. There's two outcomes. One's internal, and that's what we're going to look at this week. Next week, we're going to look at the outward or the external uh, uh, result or outcome. So look at verses 22 and 23. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Here's what is being taught. Peter's saying there is this incredible inward change that you can experience when you receive the word of truth, the message of salvation, and you are saved by it. And that in internal outcome is this. By your obedience to it, you finally learn to love genuinely. Ooh. If you don't get that, folks, you're missing out. Because here's the thing I want to talk about. Genuine Godly love is not something found in our nature. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. I can love people. Apart from Christ, I loved people. Yeah, but what was the real motivation? It's probably selfish to be liked well. Maybe that, that you might win that young lady or young man, uh, win their heart to you. That's selfish. Genuine biblical love is not part of our nature. And until Christ comes in and transforms us through salvation by a genuine surrender to his lordship, we do not know how to biblically love. Now let, let me prove that, okay? Turn over to Romans 5.5. 5. By the way, everybody needs to check out Kevin Weinberg's new Bible this morning. He got it. And I'm so proud of him. He, he bit the bullet and there's no tabs. I'm so proud of you, man. I'm not being facetious, man. Romans 5.5, 5, it's awesome Bible. Cross-references, uh, cross footnotes, all sorts of gadgets. So, All right, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How do we love because God's love has been poured out into us. Look at John 5.42. This is an amazing uh, verse. Now what's happening is Jesus is in the temple and he's being challenged by the uh, leaders in the temple. And he responds back to them. And in John 5.42, he says this, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. See, the only way... That the love of God, the genuine biblical love of God is, becomes ours is through a salvation relationship with God through Christ. So when we think that we can love people apart from Christ genuinely, we can't do it. 
Now, let me issue a couple of cautions here. If you are a young person and you're thinking about getting married or dating someone towards marriage, okay, so that's all of you middle schoolers, elementary school, high school students, college students especially, I want to say this to you. If you begin to date someone that is not a believer, you risk your marriage. Why? Because they don't have the genuine love of God in their life. And let me say this, don't go on missionary dates. You know what that means? Well, I'm going to be a missionary for God, and I'm going to try to bring them to the Lord. You give your heart away to someone who is not saved by doing that, and it jeopardizes you. Be their friend. Go out in groups. Have a great time and try to minister to them. But don't do it in a one-on-one date where you start giving your heart away. That jeopardizes you because you will be unequally yoked, and it will cause problems. Now, Let's say you're married, and that was you. You You're married to an unbelieving spouse. I want to encourage you, go read 1 Corinthians 7, because it does not give you an out. You're just going to be in, I guess, a little bit of a jam, because values are going to be different. But God gives you a way to handle that little bit of a jam. So go read 1 Corinthians 7 and see what he says. Okay, it's important. He does not say to get divorced. He says to stay in that marriage and endure because God will do a work. That doesn't ensure their, your uh, spouse's salvation if they're not a believer, but it means that you, will, you can trust God rightfully to make sure that that marriage is pursued to, so God is glorified. Okay, So that's just a little side note. Now, so here's the, the issue. Go back to Romans chapter 6 this time. So where does all this start? I love Romans 6. This is one of the first chapters of the Bible I ever memorized. And Romans 6, 17 and 18 makes this really uh, clear, I think. So let's read this together. It says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So here's the, the issue. When we're taught the scriptures, it begins to transform our thinking so that ultimately that change of thinking reaches our heart and we are transformed. And when we are transformed, what does Paul say in Romans and what does Peter say? We become obedient to the truth. And as we become obedient to the truth, what happens? Our ability to love changes. Did you get that? Look, look back with me at 1 Peter. So I want to make sure that you hear the word on this. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now look at verse 22 again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. When we understand the gospel, it transforms our thinking and we begin to become obedient to the truth and then we become genuine in our love for one another. Folks, what will transform the world around us? It's genuine love. And where does that genuine love really begin? It begins with brothers in the church, brothers and sisters, believers in the church for one another, that they see that and they long for it. Now, here's the thing. I know our tendency is to be either hypocritical or insincere. So what we need is this. We need a reform. We need to reform ourselves and work towards the reformation of one another so that we're constantly submitting ourselves to the truth of God's word, obeying it so that we love one another well. Because when we do that, the gospel will go forth. 
If we don't get it, the gospel will be hindered. Go back to the meat generation Z, the nun generation, those that have just committed a functional atheism. They ignore God. What makes us different is our love for one another. That is grounded in obedience to the truth. So let me make sure I get these points up. So lastly, I want you to see how Peter describes this because I think this is a great little word. In verse 22, he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. There's some translations that use the word fervor or fervently there. What that word means is it's like a physiological word. And, and, and it means, I, I started thinking about um, what it means to really work out hard. Um, like it, when you're doing, and I, I did this once or twice when I was in uh, high school, college, because I was a tennis player. So I wasn't looking for mass bulk when I was working out. I was looking for lean muscle. And so our workouts were light reps and you know, lots of reps with light weights. Um, there was one or two times that I did some bulk lifting. And when you do bulk lifting, what are you trying to do? Jason, you can probably speak to this more as a, a former football player. You're like trying to do max amounts in few reps and, and really like work those intensely. And that's kind of what this term means. It means to stretch to the furthest limit of a muscle's capacity. Okay, Th think about that. Love earnestly to the furthest capacity. I'll confess that's not easy because I think so many of us, truthfully, if we really got down to it, we don't want to stretch out. We want to do the minimum to get by and feel good about ourselves. But what did Christ do? How did Christ love? He laid, yeah, he stretched out on the cross. He laid his life down. And what is true brotherly love described as? Laying our lives down. And folks, if we're going to be a, a different as a church and as a people that reaches out into the world effectively, we've got to be earnest Christians. Working our love to the max capacity. It means sacrificing. It means striving together. And we're going to look at some of those words in the, the coming months of next year because that's out of a theme verse that we're looking at in first I mean in Philippians 127 and following. But are you maxing out for one another? For the sake of Jesus, our Savior. That's the call. And how do we do it? Get this, is because we're simply obedient to the imperishable word. You get that? Because that's what he follows up on. That the imperishable word of God has led to a spiritual rebirth. And this being the case, our love for one another is genuine because the Word is genuine. Our love for one another endures because the Word of God endures. It never withers. It never fails. And if that's what we're obedient to, we will never wither or fail in our love for one another. Genuine love is redemptive. It longs for restoration because that's what the Word of God promises for those who respond to faith in Jesus Christ. What an incredible way to live. What an incredible way to journey through this life. That is better and richer than any short-circuiting of God's process. 
I assure you. And if we could do that well together, there are no limits to how God can use us and to the joy that we will experience as he uses us. That's the promise of the word. Isn't that cool? Man, oh man, I just love that. So you see the practical aspects of 1 Peter. So let me leave you with this important question. How is the Holy Spirit using God's word in your life so that the fruit of obedience to the truth results in godly love for people?